Thank you, Katie, for sharing about the orphan opportunities, orphan care opportunities that we have. Thank you all for worshiping the Lord so richly. It really is encouragement to us for us to pour out our hearts before the Lord. If there's one thing we learn from history, it's what? That we don't learn from history. Which is kind of strange because, particularly as Christians, God is the God of history. And at the heart of history, the very heart of God's unfolding plan, God's unfolding story, the very heart of history is God's unfolding plan of redemption. He is the one who gives meaning to history. It's not random chance events. So we shouldn't be surprised to find God orchestrating patterns in history that emphasize his redemptive plan. We've been studying Galatians now for several weeks, and the last couple of chapters, as we finish off chapter 4 today, chapters 3 and 4 have had a lot to do with our family history, that is, our spiritual family history through Abraham. And so Paul's making a big deal about this. He's, he's back on Abraham again today as we look at Galatians 4, verses 21 to 31. Uh, and it must be because they are having such a hard time with the false teaching that was going on in the Galatian churches. Galatia was roughly today in southern uh, modern-day Turkey. And the false teachers were teaching that uh, you can't be fully acceptable to God if you are not physical descendants of Abraham, So in, in, unless you were Jewish. And Paul had already spent the bulk, as, as I said, of chapters 3 and 4, trying to dislodge this teaching from their from their uh, their minds. And so, for example, in verse 21 of chapter 3, he said, If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. So he's taught a lot about that, and he's also made very clear that the law of Moses was given as a temporary guardian that was to discipline God's people until Christ came. So it was not to, it did not override the promise the promise that God had made through Abraham to bless people, all the nations of the earth through righteousness and life that would eventually come through the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul could not have been more clear that inheriting Abraham's promise, being his son, in, in fact, literally a child of God, is by grace through faith, not law. So, one more lesson from our Christian family history today, from chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. We must read it a lot because they, because Paul, Paul has spent two chapters emphasizing the same truth. So, let's look at Galatians 4, verses 21 to 31, and we'll see what Paul's point is, is that Christians are not in law bondage, they're not in bondage to the law, but are free through God's promise in Christ. So, Galatians 4, chapter 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not break forth, who does not bear, 
Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. you pray with me? Father, this, this text, this imagery is so far removed from our current day. Would you help us to bridge the gap? To see and understand what Paul was saying to them then? And give us wisdom and Holy Spirit insight into how to apply this to our lives. How to understand it, see what Paul meant, and be encouraged and strengthened with gospel fidelity, gospel, gospel focus in our lives as a result of our time in your word together today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So Paul says in verse 21, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So he's using the word law here in two different ways. Uh, first, he says, he's talking about those who desire to be under the law. To, to desire to be under the law is to desire to be counted right in God's sight by keeping God's moral commands. And the ceremonial commands, such as circumcision and the, observing the holy days. Then when he says, listen to the law, he says, you who listen to the law, he's referring to the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. So what he's saying is if you desire to be justified under the law, have you actually read what Moses wrote? Moses the lawgiver wrote. Uh, have you, do you know what you're getting into when you desire to, to be accepted by God by uh, keeping his commands? And then in verse 22, he says, he's going to give a couple of different historical points of data, historical data. He says, For it is written, that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So the names come later in the text, but the first son that Paul is talking about was by Hagar, which was Abraham's wife's Sarah's Egyptian slave. His name is Ishmael. Uh, Ishmael had 12 sons later on himself, and uh, they became the ancestors of the Arabic tribes who lived between Egypt and the Euphrates River, that region later called Arabia. And then the son by the free woman that he's talking about was Sarah's own offspring, Isaac, who became the father of Jacob, later named Israel, who fathered 12 sons and became the nation of Israel. And so in verse 23, then Paul says that the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. So the son of the slave is born according to the flesh. In other words, he was born by natural, fallen human effort. The circumstances are that Sarah was unable to have children, but God had promised that Abraham would have a son. So Abraham and Sarah waited for a bit. No son. So when Abraham was 85 and Sarah was 75, Sarah says, perhaps we need to help God out. You know, Abe, the Bible says, the Lord helps those who help themselves. Maybe I can have children through my servant. So what have we got to lose? 
And as often happens when we decide to help God out, the plan works, right? And, but there's a lot to lose. And in their case, there's conflict in the household and conflict in the Middle East that endures to this day. So that was a major loss, a major consequence of helping God out. Then 14 years later, when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, God promises to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son by Sarah. Read my lips. Abraham laughs, later Sarah laughs, and then right on time they have a son whom they name Isaac, which means he laughs. He was born by God's promise, by, in other words, by God's power and word, not of the flesh, but of God's promise, the power of his word. So, okay, with that Bible brief historical backdrop, Paul makes an analogy, and this gets pretty heavy sledding, so stick with me through this. So the first thing we see in verse 24 is Paul says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Okay, everybody knows what an allegory is, right? It's something that Al Gore teaches. <laughs> Just to make sure you're awake. Hey, if you hate history, now we're going to get into language arts literature lessons. Yes. So allegory means, literally, literally that word means to say something else, say something other an allegory conveys something other than, on the face, the literal meaning. So, for example, uh, if you've ever read this Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It, uh, the, the characters and the events mean beyond just their literal storyline. So the meaning Paul gives to these elements he's going to describe in his analogy, or his allegory, so to speak, are not uh, the immediate meaning that Moses had when he, wrote, when he recorded this account. Well, one way of viewing this, then, is some people see it as Paul using these historical realities as illustrations. In fact, some Bible translations will say this is to illustrate, or this is an illustration of these things. But I think it does more justice to say that Paul recognizes a correspondence between the historical elements of the story of Abraham's sons with the present New Covenant pattern. So he sees a correspondence in these historical events between things that happen later, patterns that, that God has designed and hardwired into his unfolding story. So this is, here's another word, typology. What is typology? Stuffing you with big words today, so you're just going to have to take it. The typology, a type, is a prophetic foreshadowing or prefiguring by one historical event or person of others yet to come. For example, King David was a type of Jesus Christ to come later. Or the tabernacle was a type of the way that God would dwell with his people, currently in his church and then ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. Or uh, the Passover lamb was a type of Christ's substitutionary death for us. So that I think Paul saw corresponding patterns in the actual historical events that he sees as uh, having a redemptive meaning for us today. For them then, in the time he wrote this letter, 2,000 years ago, and for us today. So, verse 24, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, he says. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Okay, so he says the women represent two covenants. Two ways God has arranged to govern his relationship with people. 
And covenants can be either two parties meet the conditions or one party meets the conditions. So the old covenant, God made with Moses and the nation of Israel when he delivered them from Egypt, he gave them the law, which included the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other commandments, and the priesthood and sacrifices centered on the tabernacle and holy days. So he, he gave that to them and said, if you will keep these things, you shall be my people. And though these things were good in themselves, the law in itself was not problematic. It was good because it was a revelation given by God. Uh, they were temporary ways of governing God's relationship with people until Christ came. It was not meant to be a permanent, uh, a permanent way that God was going to relate to his people. So Israel had the privilege, if you want to call it that, of displaying for all mankind to see their inability to live up to the covenant so that all would see their need for a Savior that would fulfill what the old covenant pointed to. Israel put on display for all the nations, for all the world to see, what a great privilege, huh? To see that you can't in your own fleshly strength, no matter how holy you're seeking to be on your own, keep God's perfect commandments. And, and so they put on display that they could not do it and the, the, that the Old Covenant screened beyond itself for a Savior, one who would fulfill these things. So in Paul's allegory, or his analogy, Hagar represents the Old Covenant given on Mount Sinai. Hagar and Ishmael, her son, had been expelled to the land later known as Arabia. That's why he says uh, he's Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery, and so on. Hagar is Mount Sinai. So here's the shocking thing to the people uh, in this circumstance. Those who were teaching that you needed to add law to gospel, you needed to add the Jewish law keeping to the gospel, would have thought, oh yeah, um, Haggai and Sinai were the pr present Jerusalem. Uh, they, they, actually, they would have thought that Haggai represented the lawless Ishmaelites and all Gentiles, and Jerusalem would represent the holy people of God. But no, Paul says... Hagar equals the present Jerusalem, that is, people of slavery. So they would have, what? You can't say that. But that's what Paul's point is. So Hagar represents the present Jerusalem, people of spiritual bondage, those who are trying to be justified and gain eternal life by law-keeping. Now, I think I have a little chart for you here. This is just going to get you really excited, so just hang on to your seats. Uh, if it can be shown up there. After verse 26... There is a um, chart. Yeah, there you go. So here's what Paul's been doing. He's taken these allegory patterns or these analogy patterns. Slave woman Hagar contrasts with the free woman Sarah. Ishmael contrasts with Isaac. Birth according to the flesh contrasts with birth according to promise. Old covenant versus new covenant. And present Jerusalem versus Jerusalem about. So in contrast to those who are trying to earn God's favor by their own fallen human efforts, according to the flesh, in other words, to keep God's law, are those <clears throat> who are the freeborn citizens, or the new covenant citizens of Jerusalem above. So the, the heavenly Jerusalem above, the new Jerusalem, is already enrolling citizens who are accepted by grace alone, not their own merit, through faith alone, um, not by works of self-effort, in Christ alone, no other priests, prophets, or mediators. So, for example, if you're born in the USA, you're a citizen of the USA. Otherwise, you've got to go through all kinds of approval processes to earn your citizenship, to earn your citizenship, to prove yourself worthy and qualified. 
The qualifications to become a citizen of the New Jerusalem are impossible for fallen human beings to meet. It will only be populated, the Jerusalem above will only be populated by those who receive by faith the qualifications of the only one who is qualified, Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul is saying. And then verse 27, he says, For it is written, he's referring to Isaiah 54, 1. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So Isaiah 54, 1 takes the old covenant people of God, compares the old covenant people of God, Israel, that is the old Jerusalem, who had been carried away into exile in Babylon. So this is talking about uh, several hundred years after Moses, 600 years before Christ, when Israel was exiled in Babylon. Comparing Israel exile in Babylon to a barren, a barren that's a childless woman who's also a widow. And the shame and stigma of childlessness for a woman in that culture was huge. So was Israel's, that is, Jerusalem's shame in the Babylonian exile. But God called them to rejoice then because he promised that he would redeem them from their exile, barrenness, and desolation, and multiply children for them beyond those of any nation, no matter how strong and prosperous they are by earthly standards. So how does Paul apply this to their situation and to our situation today? In which they're being pressured, in their day they're being pressured to accept that faith alone in the gospel of Christ is not enough to be right with God. So the gospel-distorting teachers are saying that they must come under Old Testament law to be fully accepted as God's people. So with, with that text, Isaiah 54.1, that Paul is quoting for them, he's saying that all throughout history, God has intended to multiply spiritual children for himself through the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham, that through his offspring, Abraham's offspring, all peoples and nations would be blessed. All would receive the righteousness and life through Jesus Christ. That's Abraham's blessing fulfilled for us today. Righteousness and life through Jesus Christ. So he means that no matter how spiritually barren their backgrounds were, or ours are today, no matter how messed up, no matter how outwardly moral and impressive the religious gospel-distorting teachers appear, the only way anyone becomes a child of God is through the gospel, by grace alone, through faith alone. You ought to have this memorized by now. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you become spiritual children of Abraham, are being multiplied throughout the world. They're in Kazakhstan, they're in Canis, they're in Portland, they're in Saudi Arabia, that very region that Paul was talking about, that Haggai represented, uh, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, China, Tajikistan, Children of Abraham, spiritual children of Abraham have been multiplied all over the planet because God's purposes are being fulfilled, his promise. It didn't happen by law. It didn't happen by self-effort. It happened by gospel grace. And so, if you're feeling spiritually barren today, you are right on because that is, by nature, we are all that. We are all spiritually unable. We don't have life in ourselves. We don't have the capacity to honor and please God within ourselves. We only get that through Jesus. So we rejoice in our barrenness if you have placed your trust and faith in Christ. He is the one who gives spiritual life and righteousness. And that is the great news, the glad news of the gospel. In verses 28 and 29 then, 
Paul says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So he's telling them once again they are children of God through his promise to Abraham fulfilled in Christ. As he did in 3.29 and 4.7, so 4.6 and 7, Paul said to them, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Paul had to repeat this again and again and again, and I find that I need the gospel every single day. I cannot survive without the gospel every day. I need to hear from you. You need to hear from me. We need to preach it to ourselves because we are the gravitational pull of our hearts is always away from the gospel and either in despairing, giving up on our inability or proud blindness to our lack of ability. We need the gospel for both humble, humbling ourselves as well as giving hope. So he says, we are all like Isaac, children of promise. In verse 29, he says, just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. He gets that from Genesis 21.9. In Genesis 21.9, you find that Ishmael, who was an older teen, could you imagine this, you guys, mocking your younger brother or sister? I mean, I know that none of you would ever even dream of doing that because you are so model teenagers that you wouldn't even dream, think of it. But Ishmael did. And so he's taking that, Paul is taking that as an instance of Ishmael persecuting or opposing his, the son of the promise, Isaac. The point Paul is making is that just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so those who are religious according to the flesh, who trust in their religious effort, their religious and moral efforts to give them favor with God, always oppose or persecute the people of promise who are born of the Spirit of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For the greatest enemies of the gospel of Christ are religious people who are closest to Christianity in form. Some of them come out of Christian backgrounds who have rejected the gospel. They may have embraced a moral religion such as Islam or Romanism, or they may be a college religion or philosophy professor who are in, or those who are in a Christian church, quote-unquote, who deny the, the essentials of the gospel, or they may be in a church like ours who don't recognize that they're not an Isaac, they're an Ishmael. There's all kinds of ways that we can um, not, that we can oppose the gospel, whether actively or passively. So those who are religious according to the flesh, uh, their priorities and passions are centered on the flesh. That's natural human fallenness, false fallenness, self, pride, divisive. It's all about them. Those are manifestations of the flesh. Or, rather than being a, ch- uh, a child born of the Spirit, which is manifest not in perfection in this life, but godly sorrow over our imperfection. Repentance, sorrowful but always rejoicing, making much of Christ, concerning to serve and care for others for the sake of Christ. So, those who are according to the flesh versus those who are according to the Spirit, that's always been the case with God's people versus those who think they're God's people but are not. And then in verse 30, Paul brings us to the Scripture again. What does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. Now, what's that about? Well, he, he gets that from Genesis 21.10. Paul takes Sarah's words to Abraham about Hagar and Ishmael after he had mocked Isaac. Her words to Abraham were, 
get rid of this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So Abraham wasn't too happy about this. He kind of liked Ishmael. So, uh, but he, he had to get a word from God. God said, go ahead and do what your wife says. So it's not, hopefully not too often you, your husbands need to hear that. But everyone said, all we do, go ahead and do what your wife says. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, uh, God is very specifically reminding and recommitting the promise to Abraham that through Isaac, his offspring shall be named. The promise is going to come through Isaac. Paul's point for the Galatians and for us is this. This is really important to get this. The bondage of law and gospel freedom cannot coexist. Bondage of law and gospel freedom do not hang together. They cannot exist together. You can't mix the two. If you try to add law to gospel as a way to be right with God and to have eternal life from God, you don't get a stronger gospel or a more balanced gospel. You get no gospel. So the law is always a neutralizer to the gospel if you're using it to count yourself righteous and to earn, your, earn God's favor. It's like when Abraham and Sarah thought they would help God out to carry out his promise. You get a slave woman's son who does not carry the promise of freedom, only bondage. So what Paul's saying in verse 30 is, unless these false teachers are going to repent of their gospel-distorting teaching, separate yourself from them, do whatever you need to come out from under their influence, because, as he says in verse 31, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So back in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul said, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? How could you give up gospel freedom for bondage? Why would you give up freedom for bondage? Why do we do that? Because bondage is more comfortable to us and are following this. As crazy as it sounds. Why would you give up gospel freedom for bondage to the law, to the human efforts at self-salvation? Remember who you are. You are sons of the free women, like Isaac, born to the promise of the new covenant, already citizens of the new Jerusalem. That's the community of the redeemed people of God, born according to the Spirit. Freedom from bondage under law means we are freed from the condemning, enslaving power of law. None of our efforts to please God can get rid of our sin nature, give us a right status before God, make us a child of God, accomplish eternal life. Only the life Death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has accomplished these for us. We can only receive him by faith. Now, sneak peek, Galatians 5.1. I think I might have it on the screen. All of this talk about how bad it is to trust the law could cause us to ask this. If we don't obey God's law to earn or merit his, his favor, does this mean that we sin freely? We have a grand time enjoying our depravity. And so, for the next several weeks as we close out Galatians, we're going to be looking at what does this freedom look like? Freedom looks like it's not freedom to do as we please, but freedom to want to be and do what pleases God. To love and serve others. What do you need freedom from? What do you need freedom from today? Do you need freedom from bitterness, guilt and shame, anger, Substance or sexual addictions, unforgiveness. What do you need freedom for? Freedom for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You know, at best, our non-gospel effort to change, 
that's law, can clean up some external behaviors, but then there'll just be an impressive Ishmael, or a religious hypocrite, or a proud Hagar. Christ has set us free, therefore stand firm in that freedom, and don't submit again to slavery to fallen human efforts to earn God's favor. That's what we're going to be talking about. That's what we're going to be celebrating as we come to the communion table together. We're going to be talking about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, how that alone, how He alone saves us. When we take the communion meal together, we're, what we're acknowledging that we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're acknowledging that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in human flesh, obeyed in a place for us, obeyed in our place, and died in our place, and shed in His blood for the ratification, for the confirmation, for the validation of the new covenant. If you don't believe that yet, today would be a great day to embrace that truth. Today would be a wonderful day to say, you know, I recognize I cannot earn God's favor at all on my own. I need Jesus to save me. And we need the gospel every day. And so this is, today we've been looking at an allegory, a symbolic representation of spiritual truths beyond what was the face meaning of the text. These elements today have no magical power to do anything for us. They don't have any special spiritual anointing to do anything for us. The bread and the cup are, we take them by faith, recognizing, confessing, I need Christ every day. And I recognize and confess that he, his righteousness is my righteousness if I put my trust in him. Through Him alone do I have uh, a right standing before God. Through Him alone do I have everlasting life. So the way we're going to do that is we have stations. We have tables with four around the room. One here, one here, one here, and one back here. And Matt, you're going to go to the back. Back of the room for you, bud. And uh, we're, going to have, we're going to have a song um, for us to meditate on, Nothing But the Blood. And then we will come up and we'll serve you the elements. We're going to pray for you in light of the, what God is doing for us through Christ in taking these elements. So let's prepare our hearts to receive the communion meal together. <laughs>